Actually, and we will read God's Word. I think what I'm going to do, similar to what Pastor Brett has done some in some recent weeks, is kind of intersperse it uh, throughout the preaching of the text. This is a big chapter, and we're going to be referring to it a lot. Uh, but we're going to be turning to Genesis chapter 4 for this sermon. Uh, but let's go ahead and go before our Lord with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. This is your day, just like the rainy, cloudy, drizzly ones. This is your season, your time, all times appointed by you. And we know that you've called us before your word to worship in a day and in a season such as this, and to go out and be doers of the word in a day and season such as this. Lord, please fill my heart with your word as I prepare to share it with your people and equip my tongue to sing of your praises. Open our ears, our eyes, our hearts. Take away the sting of our, si- of our sin and of death as we attempt to hear your word with unfettered hearts and minds. Help us to receive your word with gladness and growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to be talking about a certain hope in an uncertain age. And I thought there's no better place to go back to in God's word than when this whole mess got started. Now, I don't know about you guys, but use the words of R.C. Sproul, I'm often surprised by suffering. I like to say I'm not. I teach all these Sunday school classes. But it's a lot easier to talk about these things in theory than in practice. And I don't know about you. Well, I probably do know about you here. And that you are all rattled right now, just like I've been. I don't know about you guys, but I feel wobbly and disoriented. I, I realize I'm convicted in my own idolatry that I have mistaken the gracious providences of God for the eternal promises of God. I have treated these gracious providences that he has given us as if they're permanent, as if, as if he's assured us of them. I have assumed that we'd have a, a certain type of economy that always be able to snap back in seasons of change, a certain type of political system that would check our worst vices and help encourage our virtues, that we'd always have the strongest military in the world to defend ourselves, that we'd always have a certain degree of order and a certain degree of stability in our culture. And I think we can all agree that the past couple months are good evidence that none of those things are permanent, none of those things are assured, and if you're like me, you were probably engaging a little bit in Jesus plus. Jesus plus this bit of financial stability and cultural stability and political stability. I think we were all leaning on idols that were not necessarily Jesus himself. And so that's why I feel wobbly, probably like you. Some of those uh, false idols, almost like Elimelech and Malin and Killian for Naomi, have been knocked out from under us. And we're we're having to say, is Jesus enough? But in order to keep us from continuing to be surprised by suffering... That's why I want to go back to Genesis 4, and really right before that, Genesis 3 as well, to the very beginning of this story of brokenness. So we can, in a sense, readjust our expectations, treat this world as it realistically is and not as we wish it to be, and then also learn how to cling better to hope. So before we dig into Genesis 4, let's talk for a moment about Genesis 3. It's a very familiar story to all of you guys, and yet these stories never get old for us. It's the story of our God, and our redemption in him. So in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And even as we say that, even as we begin to imagine God's original creation, 
we immediately begin to undervalue, undersell, and underappreciate it. There's no way we can truly fathom how beautiful and how gorgeous that creation is, or we'd probably be a lot more grieved by how fallen and broken this world is. Now, of course, we know what happened uh, to that original beauty. God had said, you know, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And then, the, and then Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes into the garden. And he tempts Eve. She eats, eats the fruit and sins against God. She shares that fruit with Adam. He sins against God. And together they sinned and fell from the living God. And as our confessions say, we did with them. With them, we sinned and fell from God. And that's a great principle we all know. And yet we begin to see how dire the effects of that sin truly are in the immediate aftermath of what happened with Adam and Eve. God comes to confront them. Adam and Eve, where are you? He knows where they are. He's drawing them before him in a sense on trial. And we find them hiding, covered with coverings of their own making, some form of fruit from the field, coverings of their own making, thinking they can hide their sin and their shame from God. Did it work? No. It did not work. And God began to dish out punishment after punishment upon them. He told them, you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And so he begins to unravel all the curses that would come with the fall. You'll still be fruitful and multiply, but now there'll be pain and childbirth. You will still go out to subdue the earth, but man, is there going to be thorns and thistles along the way. You won't die right away, but you will die, and all who come after you. And even as he's giving these punishments to our first parents, and to us through them, he is also offering his common grace, his grace to all mankind. There'd be thorns and thistles, but we'd still work. We'd still, in a sense, tend the garden, even though it often feels like a wilderness. We would have pain in childbirth, but there would still be life anew, over and over again, down through the ages. We would die, and yet we get to experience a little more life before that. So already there's graces wrapped up with those, with those punishments. And of course, we all know the greatest promise embedded in all of that. Addressing the serpent, one day your seed will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but he will crush your head. And there you have the first pronouncement of the gospel. One day these curses would be reversed. Sin, suffering, shame, death would all be turned over against themselves. One day the adversary who lured us into this sin, of which we're so complicit, would himself be crushed by the seed of the same man who undid us in the first place. But even now, at the end of Genesis 3, you really have the principle of sin. Like, it sounds in theory, we love talking theory, it sounds in theory really bad. But you don't really get the picture of it until Genesis 4. But remember, even as God gave Adam and Eve that promise about the crushing the head of the serpent, he then clothed them on the way out from the Garden of Eden in animal skins. Of course, you can't get animal skins without the shedding of blood. And so in a sense, there in, in the Garden, aftermath of sin, you see two different sorts of coverings two different sorts of religious systems, two different ways of handling sin. One, with the fruits of your own hands, trying to cover your sin and your shame. 
or covered by God through a blood sacrifice. Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Two different people here, two different sacrifices. We are already told there's going to be enmity between the line of the serpent and the line of Eve, leading down to Christ. And you see two different sacrifices here. One God has regard for, the other he does not. And why is that? I think you get a hint just with the pattern set up in Genesis 3. How did Adam and Eve try to cover themselves? Fruits of their own making, leaves of their own making, a covering of their own making. How did God cover them? With a blood sacrifice. How do Cain and Abel come before God? Cain with the fruits of the field. Abel with a blood offering. Already you see echoes of those original images of two ways to come before God. The way of the world, the way of the serpent, and the way that God has ordained through the shedding of blood. But if that's not conclusive enough, we're also told in Hebrews 11 that it is by faith that Abel had offered his sacrifice. He's part of the hall of faith there, the hall of heroes. People who by grace, through faith, attach their hope in the promises of God and saw on the horizon that shadowy figure of Christ. And Abel did. And it's in that light that he made a sacrifice. We see a very different heart, a very different heart than faith with Cain and how he responds to God's rebuke. The Lord, or so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain's response to God's rebuke was not repentance. It was not conviction of sin. It was not amending his ways by God's grace. He grew angry and it's like a shadow fell upon his face. The shadow of Cain, as he grew angry against God. You know, when we grow angry against God, you know, a lot of us do that on occasion. It's ultimately rooted in self-righteousness. You cannot be angry at God and against his providences without assuming that somehow you know or would do better. And so the heart of Abel is a heart of faith in God and in the promised Messiah to come. For Cain, for the ways of the world, it was through your own efforts, your own self-righteousness. And ultimately, when those sacrifices are rejected, anger appears. And Cain, in his self-righteousness, unable to strike down the living God, instead brings his arm down on his brother. Cain spoke to Abel, Abel his brother, verse 8. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord had just warned him. Cain, sin is crouched at the door. The imagery there is of that of a, ser of, of a serpent. 
Just like in Genesis 3. Hey, Cain, someone's back in the garden. Put him under your feet. Subdue the serpent or he will subdue you. Either you will reject the serpent here and now or in a sense you will become a vassal and a vessel of the serpent. And he chose the latter. Cain decided to side with, with Satan over against God and his servant Abel and struck down his brother. The first real picture of sin in this fallen, broken world. And look how Cain responds to God. Then the, then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The gall, right? And it's bad enough that Adam and Eve were blame-shifting in the garden when they were confronted. That's bad enough. At least they had a little fear, a little humility. Cain, I do not know to the omniscient, omnipresent God, lies directly to the face of God and then says, am I my brother's keeper? Disavowing his fellow man, disavowing his own flesh and blood. Look what sin has done to disfigure this world. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And therein lies, in a sense, the origins of mankind and our fallenness and brokenness. Fugitives and wanderers on the, on the earth. But the image there is chilling. Your brother's blood is crying up to me from the ground. God hears, God sees, God knows. And that blood, the blood of injustice, the blood of sin and suffering, the blood of humanity turned against its God and turned inward against itself, all symbolized by that expression, all picture that expression, your brother's blood is crying up to me from the ground. What a chilling, chilling image. I think one of the most chilling in all of scripture, a fitting image for this world. The blood of Abel crying up to God from the ground. And what is it crying for? Well, I think you find perhaps a clue to this in Abel's very name in the Hebrew, Hebel. It's the same word that you get for in Ecclesiastes, a very famous word for meaninglessness, vanity. Remember, that's how the whole book of Ecclesiastes begins, looking out at this wilderness world. Meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity, or it could also be translated chaos, chaos. Some Old Testament scholars would even say it'd be best translated with a cuss word. I'm not saying you should, but this underscore the, what this, the potency of this word. Something is direly, tragically wrong about this world and about the human race. And that's what's crying up to God from the ground. This is chaos. This is misery. This is pointless and meaningless. What is wrong with this world? It's crying out for God's justice, crying out for God's judgment to take the world that has been horribly disordered ordered and put it to rights, including us. And so let's rest there for just a second. 
I'll try to become less energetic, less vocal for a moment. This is a fitting image of what our world looks like. How dare I presume that it should be otherwise? Like, yeah, there's, there's chaos in this world, there's fallenness, there's brokenness. But it's usually on the other side of a TV screen, somewhere else in the world. I'll pray for those people. And I'll go back to eating my dinner. I'm, I'm not so used to it really creeping up to my own doorstep, to my own heart. And yet here we are, disoriented, reeling at the weight of suffering and sin in this world, somehow surprised by it, as if this hasn't been the story of brokenness throughout human history. As if some of the good, providential, common graces that God has given us are somehow supposed to be permanent, as if we're entitled to them. We're not. What do we deserve? We deserve death. And yet God's given us not only the grace of Jesus, but a lot of these common graces as well. And now, for whatever reason, God's providence, we don't know why. He might be choosing to remove some of these common graces. We don't know why he does what he does. We just know what we're supposed to do in response, and we'll get to that. But this is a fitting picture of this world. This is what we should be expecting. And there's graces here, too. We'll get into those. But we should not be surprised by sin and suffering, as if somehow our system of government, as if somehow our economy, as somehow our way of living is supposed to be permanent. I thought that. Where did I get off thinking that? It was an idol of my own making. Cain replies to the Lord, verse 13. My punishment is greater than I can bear. He's right. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Chaos, chaos. God, you can't just turn your face from me and send me out into the world. I will be murdered. How does he know that? Because he knows his own heart. He knows what he just did. And the world looks just like that heart of Cain's. Just as ugly, just as barren. You look into your own heart, if you take it seriously, you see the vileness of the world and vice versa. He knows that it's chaos out there and there's no way he can live totally abandoned by God. So God in his common grace steps in again. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. In other words, I will still maintain a degree of order and justice in this world. I will hold the tides of sin at bay so the world doesn't totally get swept over in chaos. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We see how vile the world looks. But there's also an assurance here given by God. No, Cain, I will not let you or others like you just casually, meaninglessly be wiped off the face of the earth. There will be tragedy, suffering, sin, shame, and abundance. But there will also be a degree of order and chaos. I think, I think about it. If the consequences of sin were truly realized in this world, would we be here today? It'd all be undone. But God assures us otherwise. Verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
perhaps a hint already of some of the idolatry you'd see in human governments, naming the city after his own image bearer. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methujael, and Methujael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. So this is a genealogy, in a sense, of the human race, and of the, really the line of the serpent. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zila. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zila also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Even in this genealogy of, in a sense, the serpent line, the worldly line, you still see God's common grace. You see a liar. You see a pipe. You see tents and livestock, instruments of bronze and iron. Already good gifts are being cultivated in this world in which we can still be fruitful and multiply, even against the backdrop of sin and suffering and chaos. And yet, at some points, as Cain well knew, sin waxes strong in this world. Stronger than we're normally used to. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adon, Zila, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This leader, this ruler, this descendant of Cain has just said, I'm going to redefine justice and order. I'm going to respond disproportionately. If a man strikes me, I will strike him down. I'll kill him for wounding me. And by the way, Cain's vengeance, which was really also a promise of God's justice. We know that they said sevenfold. I say 70 times sevenfold. In other words, I'm going to redefine the terms of worldly justice, of worldly order. I'm going to try to peel back the beauties of God's common grace in this world to all mankind. And here you find really an existential threat to the line of Christ. Already, the, already Abel, the next in the line, has been killed, making you wonder what of the hope and the promises of that future Messiah. And at the same time, you find human civilization progressively getting worse. And if this chapter ended here, I'd be really bummed out, and so would you. And yet, after we just hear this genealogy of the line of the serpent, and get a really grisly picture at chaos in this world restrained by God's common grace, you're given a reminder of an even more central promise. Not a passing providence, a reminder of promise. An eternal promise. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth. For she, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Seth in the, in the Hebrew means he appointed. But what was appointed here? Was it just another baby? Like, ooh, another baby. Or was it more than that? Notice the words of Eve here. He has appointed for me another offspring not after Abel, instead of Abel. He is a replacement. He is filling in for something that was, that was lost with Abel. 
And that was the hope and promises of Christ. The line will be renewed. God has appointed life after death, hope after despair. The, the heel might have been struck. The head will still be crushed. And so we're reminded, and a chapter becomes more dark and more dismal. At the end of the day, who still is standing? To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Not the name of their own image bearers, they named cities. The name of the Lord. And the gates of hell would not prevail. Brothers and sisters, these are the eternal promises of God. God appointed life after death, hope after despair. He appointed Seth and so, so that we would be reminded that he would also appoint Jesus Christ. The heel would be struck over and over again throughout the ages, and yet the head would still be crushed. God would not leave himself without a people in this world. Not long after, well, we're told in Genesis 5, we're given the genealogy now, the line of Christ. And the line that God is now continuing as the world seems to be devolving into greater and greater chaos. And when the two finally collide in dramatic fashion, Genesis 6, the tide of sin does not wash over the world. God washes over the world to preserve his church. And brothers and sisters, because God appointed Seth, we know that he would appoint Christ. And because he has appointed Christ, we know that, we know that he would also appoint, appoint in the people for himself throughout the ages, ourselves included. Appointed you and me, all of us, to live in Christ and to find in him our identity. That's what he promises to us. He promised to, promises us that even as it looks like the world is devolving into hell, he would preserve for himself a church. He will still restrain from the excesses of sin and his common grace. And we can thank God for that and we can still see that today because what are we doing right now? We get to call upon the name of the Lord and worship just as Seth and Enosh and their descendants got to do. And yet, God does not even promise us this. But he promises us that we will abide. That we will abide in that vine. We will grow. We will live. And we will have life and life to the full. That's where the promises are. The world is way worse than I think we assumed. We know that because we, if we look into our own hearts, we see where sin can lead. And yet the promises of God are way better. But we're only going to pay attention to that. We're only going to notice that if we stop attaching our hopes to the temporary providences of God. We have to look past the temporary providences, which are all part of God's holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of his people and their actions. And yet they're going to look different in every age. What has he promised? He's promised us that the noise of the world around us does not need to drown out the sound of his voice in our lives through his word. He has promised us that we have an imperishable hope that will never be annihilated. So here's my call to you, brothers and sisters. We all need to look in our hearts, and I would encourage you all, and myself as well, to repent. This needs to be a season of repentance. I have not just leaned on the Lord. I've leaned on so many other things and treated them as God. And now I feel wobbly. If you feel wobbly, you probably have a place you need to repent. 
Let's look at it a different way. What is the state of your heart and your hope right now? Are you angry? Are you despairing? Are you anxious? Then you need to repent. Nothing out there in the world truly gives you reason to do that. Not if you know Jesus is your Savior. It's, it's right to struggle. We all struggle. We, are, we all are broken and fallen and feeble. And yet, if you find yourself paralyzed by anger, by despair, or by, by anxiety, you are finding your identity, your life, your livelihood, and the wrong things. We live in a culture right now divided in two halves. One half that desires their, their safety and their lives beyond all things and will compromise anything that gets in its way. Another half that values livelihood and liberty above all things and will compromise anything that gets in its way. And both of them, both of them are looking to this world for hope and for comfort. We are neither defined by our earthly security or our earthly liberty. We are defined by Christ alone. The world is looking to you and our culture is looking to you, brothers and sisters, to see how you will act as Christians in response to this. If they see you capitulating to anxiety and anger and despair just like they are, if they see you desperately clinging to the things of this world as if they are ultimate just like they are, then they'll assume this is all a hoax, this whole Christianity thing. We must be defined by Christ in this hour. We must be defined by the hope and the peace and the joy and the rest that he gives us in any and every circumstance. If people don't see that, then we're not truly honoring the living God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Instead of finding excuses for your anger and despair and anxiety, find rest in the Jesus who has already dealt with this and will deal with it again. That is your calling. You must stand apart here now. It is easier than ever to be a Christian. You probably don't believe me. It is easier than ever to be a Christian in our culture because all you have to do is go out there and be a Christian. You only have to talk about it. And the difference will be obvious because you're not crippled and crumbling in despair. It's the easiest time to be a Christian. Will you take up that calling? God in his providence has perhaps removed some of his common graces and he is throwing down a gauntlet and asking you to take it up along with your cross and follow after him. Will you do so? Or will we be devoured by backbiting and infighting, division, gossip, slander? Think about how this looks in the eyes of the world. They should see a people animated by a certain hope. And if, we, if they don't see that, then we're not seeing what really makes life worthwhile. The hope of Christ has not changed one bit. What we're going through right now is in no means an accident of God's providence. And we know that his providences are holy, wise, and powerful for your good and for his glory. If you doubt that, the fault is not in our Lord. It's in us. Let this be a season of repentance. And then let us take up the gauntlet and take up the cross, follow after Jesus, our Savior, and our Lord, and perhaps what could be the most exciting time to be a Christian in our culture. And be willing to suffer if need be, because there are things way worse than suffering in this world. As Seth would say, it's hell. And there are things far greater than our earthly freedoms, our earthly security, our earthly provision. Let's pray. Gracious God and Almighty Father, 
We're brokenhearted at the brokenness of this world. We're brokenhearted at the brokenness of our own hearts. And yet, you have appointed for us a Savior. A Savior born into the very depths and hearts of this darkness. A Savior who endured our every suffering and yet did not sin. And then for the joy set before him, endured a cross, scorning the shame. So that our judgment might be borne by him and his perfect righteousness borne by us and your mercy and favor along with him. Thank you for Jesus. How can we not delight in Jesus even in this hour, especially in this hour? Because Jesus is so much greater than all of us. All of this. You have promised that the tides of sin will not overwhelm us. You have also promised that the tides of your grace will ultimately sweep over the face of this earth. Help us to trust in Jesus. Help us to reorient anew as your people and as your church. Let the days that otherwise feel like our darkest days instead feel like our brightest because we follow King Jesus. And in him we have all things. Help us to truly believe this, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that all these other things will be added unto us in accordance with your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.